I want to introduce to you our speaker today is Michael Ramston. He'll be known to many of you. He's one of the founders of OCA, which is the Oxford Center for Christian Apologetics. That's to say, he's someone who goes around explaining the reasons, the very good reasons we have to believe what we believe about Jesus. This is not just based on wishful thinking. This is based on good historical evidence, the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And uh, uh, Michael is someone who goes around the world, literally around the world. I've recently been in China, the Middle East, all over the world, explaining the reasons to believe. He's married to Anne. They have three children. And we are hugely privileged to have him. Often he's speaking in places like the White House or NATO headquarters. But today, he's here at HTB. So would you give him a very warm welcome? Thank you. Well, it's um, so good to be with you, especially on uh, this Sunday. And um, congratulations to um, all of those who were just baptized. I can remember the day I was baptized myself. Um, very, very, very clear moment uh, for me, having spent most of my childhood growing up in a Middle Eastern culture, and then actually meeting Christians and looking in their eyes and realizing that there was something different um, about this particular group of Christians. I'd met some other Christians who went to church. Um, I can remember the first time I went to church, uh, I was at Anglican Cathedral, um, and there was a guy at the front who didn't look particularly happy. Uh, he was wearing a long white dress down to the floor, which didn't bother me at all, because we wore want long white dresses down to the floor in Saudi in the UAE, so that wasn't an issue. Um, but it was when um, we were going through the service at one point, and he held out his hands, and he said, my heart is full and my cup overfloweth. Joy to the Lord. And I, I didn't believe him, basically. Um, uh, they used to sing um, a song in, in that church. I can remember, this is before I became a Christian, the couple of times I went to church beforehand, and they sang this song, there's a joy, joy, joy deep down in my heart. And everybody would say, where? You know, deep down in my heart, where? And sometimes it was just so deep, it, I will say I hadn't seen the light of day in decades. <laughs> and then all of a sudden, I encountered a group of Christians and I could immediately tell there was something different about them. It made an honest and real difference to their life and how they lived. And my interest was more than piqued and intrigued. And I went along and to a group for nine months where I asked, at the end of every session they did, it was about an hour, an hour and a half long. Um, I would then ask questions for about an hour and a half. Interesting thing about this group is I actually organized it and set it up. I convinced these Christians that they should do a group and I'll bring my friends so we could ask our questions. And then through that group I became a Christian, so God actually had me plan and organize my own conversion. But that's, <laughs> that's a story I'll tell you some other day. As we um, come here, I would love to read to you a couple of words um, out of uh, 1 Corinthians 13. And um, let me just um, add my welcome here. If you are a visitor, so am I. I'm intrigued by the fact that as I stand here speaking to you, there's a floor that slides away to reveal a pool underneath me. Um, I've seen too many James Bond films to feel comfortable. If you see me walking down the steps towards you, that's not because I'm trying to impose myself on you, it's just for my own state of sanity and safety that I'm doing that. Um, and it's also wonderful to be in this church. Every time you're invited to speak as a guest in a place like this, it's always an honor. You always wonder what they'll make of what you've done. So I couldn't help noticing as I came in, I don't know if it was on the screen when you came in, it said next week, help with fighting depression. And I thought, what a great way to follow up from whatever I will be sharing with you right now. 
But let me read to you, I want to read to you a few words, and for some of you, you'll know the words to both of what I'm about to ring to you, read to you. Some of you will only know one. But let me start off by reading some very well-known words that you may have heard read from the Bible, regardless of whether you've ever been to church in your life or not. And it's taken from 1 Corinthians chapter 13, and what for many would be considered some of the finest words on love ever written. Now, I'm reading from a, the translation of the Bible, which we actually have here in this particular church, which is on page 1154, if you want to have a look at it. But some of you will be familiar with a more old version of it from the King James translation because it's so poetical and has a certain ring to it. But let me read it to the one that's here. It says, if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels but do not have love, I'm only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have faith that can move mountains, if I give but have not love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship that I may boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and love is kind. It does not envy, it does not boast, it is not proud. It does not dishonor others, it is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices in the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, and always perseveres. Love never fails. But where there are prophecies, they will cease, and where there are tongues, they will be stilled, and where there is knowledge, it will pass away. For we now know in part, and we prophesy in part. But when completeness comes, what is in part disappears. When I was a child, I talked like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put the ways of childhood behind me. For now, we only see a reflection as in a mirror, but then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. These remarkable words um, speak to us of a type of love which we are increasingly unfamiliar with, because it speaks of a kind of love which somehow it seems to be bigger or greater than maybe things that we've thought of in, um, in the past. My uh, eldest daughter, uh, Lucy, uh, sent me the uh, words to a song, um, I think about a year ago or so, saying, I think, this read this, I think you're going to enjoy it. And I've actually found these words fascinating. It's by a group called Extreme. And these are the words that some of you here may know, but others may not. But this is, these are the lyrics to their song. Saying I love you are not the words I want to hear from you. It's not that I want you not to say, but if you only knew how easy it would be to show me how you feel, more than words is all you have to do to make it real. Then you wouldn't have to say that you love me, because I would already know. What would you do if my heart was torn in two? More than words to show you feel that your love for me is real. What would you say if I took these words away, then you couldn't make things new just by saying, I love you. It's an incredibly profound song. I don't know if you see what they're saying. They're saying, imagine, you keep saying to me the words, I love you, I love you. But imagine I took those words away. Imagine those words were removed from you. What would you do to show me that your love is real? And then when things go wrong and when my heart is torn in two, you couldn't try to repair it simply by saying, I love you. Because you wouldn't have those words. So what would you do? What concrete act... What type of life, what sort of demonstration would you give to demonstrate that you truly love me? Now that's an incredible question. And it's a very, very perceptive one because those words, I love you, are so easily given and yet so rarely thought about. I can remember many, many years ago when my wife and I were living up in the northeast of England in a town called Worksop, which if you're visiting this country is basically the cultural epicenter of Great Britain. And... Um, this small ex-coal mining community 
um, had it in a small church my wife and I were part of, and we inherited a small youth group, 13 women, um, all of them teenagers, and as a result, one of the most scary groups I've ever talked to in my entire life. I can honestly put my hand on my heart and say I felt more nerves and anxiousness getting ready to speak to this group of 13 um, teenage girls than almost any other audience I have ever met with. And you know, recently I spent a couple of hours with some of the leadership of Boko Haram, so I've got some pretty strong points of comparison to make. <laughs> and the first time I ever met with them thinking, look, I'm not sure, how do I know we're communicating on the same page? I asked them if they would do an exercise with me. So they all gathered in our house and I gave all of them a piece of paper. And I asked them all to write down on that piece of paper with no conferring or talking with anyone else. They all got a, went to their own little space. I said, I want you to write down the question you would most like to have answered if we were to have a discussion in this group. And what I'll do is I said, I'll collect all the pieces of paper in and whatever question is the most common, that is the question that we will give ourselves to. And after, at the end of the evening, I gathered in all the pieces of paper and there was only one question that appeared on every single piece of paper, only one. And the question is, what is love? You fall in love, you get married. You fall out of love, you get divorced. What is love? Well, I spent the next six, week, six days terrified of what I was gonna say in answer to this particular question. And so I did some market research. This was in the days before the internet. Yes, I'm, I'm that old, in case you're wondering. <laughs> and so I asked all of them if, I, if they would mind bringing around the magazines that they were reading to me. And so two days after that, I then had 40 magazines to read and I sat down and I read through the 40 magazines these teenagers were reading. And in all of those magazines, they had words to lyrics of songs that they were singing. And so I read through all of those lyrics and I suddenly had an idea and I, I can remember actually, um, unbeknownst to me, I, I've, I've told this story before and many years ago someone heard this story and they said, I'm assuming it's apocryphal and they made a TV show out of it, but actually it's a true story. So when all the girls came back six days, a week later, I got them to sit in a circle and they all, I invited them all to close their eyes. And I said, I want you to imagine the following thing with me. I'd like you to imagine that tomorrow you go to school and the boy you like the most comes up to you and says, I love you, how do you feel? and every face was like this. <laughs> it was the happiest bunch of people I've ever seen in my whole life. <laughs> and then I said, okay, now I'd like you to imagine the following day you go back and now you see the same boy telling a different girl I love you, now how do you feel? And every smile disappeared. And then I got them to open their eyes and I said, you see the words I love you are only meaningful because they are given committedly and exclusively to you. And outside of that moral framework of exclusivity and commitment, those words become cheap, they mean nothing. That's why a very famous group of British philosophers published a very small, uh, 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 this uh, group of philosophers was, went by the name of the Spice Girls, and they, <laughs> they, um, they published a very small philosophical treatise exactly on this question, which became a number one hit in this country many, many years ago, the chorus of which said, don't tell me you love me, just tell me you'll be there. Don't tell me you love me, just tell me you'll be there. It's an earlier version of exactly what's being sung about here by extreme. Look, those words come to you so easily. I love you, I love you, I love you. I'm asking for something which seems to be more than that. Three years ago, um, my eldest daughter, as you can see, she likes to send me things to read, otherwise I wouldn't read anything. She was reading a book called A Handmaid's Tale by Margaret Atwood. Now, I haven't seen the TV series, primarily because if the TV series is anything near as dark as the book, then I wouldn't be able to cope with the TV series. So I've read the book. And I'll never forget reading the book three years ago and then suddenly coming across these words and they just leapt off the page to me and I pulled out a pen and underlined them. 
But this is what Margaret Atwood, who as far as I'm aware is not a Christian of any description, as far as I'm aware, I may be wrong on that. But here's what she said in her book. This is towards the end of it. She said, God is love, they once said. But we reverse that. That's profound. God is love, we once said. But we have reversed that. In other words, love is now God. And like heaven, love was always just around the corner. The more difficult it was to love the particular beside us, the more we relived, we, we looked and believed and loved in the abstract, in the total. We were waiting always for the incarnation, for that word, love, to be made flesh. Now, is that an interesting statement? It's now coming even more decades, even before the Spice Girls. But the same kind of cry. I'm looking for that thing which is made concrete. I want to see this made real. This has to be more than a concept. What is it actually all about? And that's why these words which we read this morning from 1 Corinthians 13 are so utterly profound today. Because it's talking about love in a way which for most of us, we, we, at times we wonder whether such a thing is even possible as is described here. It's incredible. It's talking about love that does not, well, at one point we read a phrase, it says, you know, um, love is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. That, that's an accounting term. It literally means when you've experienced this love and you know true love, you don't pay back in the same coin as it was paid to you. And one of the testimonies we heard from the, one of the baptism candidates today was precisely that. What difference has it made when you came to meet Jesus Christ, when you met God in the person of Christ? And in the Bible, it says that God is love. Jesus Christ is love. And the response was, well, even though I went through all of the bitterness of this divorce, I don't feel that anymore. I don't want to pay them back in the same coin that was paid to me. It's an incredible thing to change the heart and to be set free from bitterness. Someone once very famously said, it's hard to see the walls of your prison when the cell is made of glass. And so often, the things which imprison us, we can't see. We see through them. We're not, sometimes we may even fool ourselves that actually we're unfettered by it, but we're still somehow locked in, looking to actually break free of something, even if we're not sure what it is, which is why the things that we don't see easily, more effectively imprison us, because we may not even be aware of the fact that we're trapped in it in some kind of way. And so we also read in these words here too about love being patient and love being kind. Well, another one of the people who shared this morning was talking about the fact that ever since they became a Christian that they now respond to people differently. They feel a greater sense of compassion. They actually want to help. It's so interesting now when we talk about people being compassionate and wanting to help, we think of someone who's weak. We see it as a sign of weakness. It means you allow people to walk over to you, but that's not what that means at all. The word kind used here in, that we translate kind in the Greek that's given in the passage that this is written in, that word is the same word used to describe a strong yet gentle war horse. So the mental picture of something incredibly strong, almost fearsome, that could kill you if it kicked you, but actually so gentle, is so well-mannered, that all of that strength is perfectly under control. And that's what real love does. It marries strength with real control. And it comes therefore across as kindness. It's never harsh. It's not seeking its own, it's not narcissistic. So much of what we mistake for love today is just basically narcissism, we're just locked in on ourselves. There was a survey done of young people recently in which people said that the most lonely space to be is on the public space, on the internet, because you have to pretend out there. One of the teenagers who responded to the national survey on this recently said, the internet is the loneliest place, every connection I have is based on falseness. In other words, I'm constantly trying to be someone I'm not in order to get them to love me. This is why the government recently appointed a minister for loneliness. Sadly, they only appointed one, so they're immediately <laughs> going to have a problem with this. 
because it's a real issue. It's one of the fundamental issues facing our society. We're connected to everybody, but we're, we feel that somehow we're lacking in real relationship. We're actually looking for someone who knows us, knows us so deeply that they actually care for us even when we're not in the right. And that's the most amazing thing about God's love. You see, we live in a culture where we've totally confused the concepts of love and affirmation. When we say, I love you, what we now think that means is I affirm everything you do and I approve of it. But that's not, but love isn't, and affirmation aren't the same thing. As a matter of fact, you may love someone so much that you don't want to affirm them, you're gonna to have to disagree with them, and the question is, how will it be done? If there's one thing that marks out Western civilization and one of the ideas that informed it was not about how we handle disagreement, we want to make everybody uniform today to think the same way and to act the same way, that's crazy. That's not the mark of true civilization. Civilization isn't marked out by it handles, how it handles agreement. Civilization is marked out by it handles disagreement. What does it mean when you have people who fundamentally disagree yet somehow can respect and love each other? We're looking for something which is just so much deeper than so many of the shallow things that we've brought into. And this, what Corinthians is talking about here is it's once you have met the God who is love, once you meet God incarnate, that word, love, made flesh in the person of Jesus Christ, once you encounter him, it changes everything about you. I'm wondering if you know that kind of love, if you enjoy that kind of relationship with God. That is what is at right at the heart of the Christian faith is a living, loving relationship with God. Now, the way we think about these things in our day and age very often is that when we think of what is right and wrong, when we think about what's good and bad, when we think in terms of morals and ethics, in other words, we we very often assume, because of the way we've been taught, that what makes something ethical is when we do something even when we don't want to do it. Uh, Immanuel Kant was very, very famous at saying this. Um, He basically said, look, there's right and wrong and you should do it. But what really has real moral value is there's something which is right, you should do it, but you don't want to do it. Maybe you even hate the idea of doing it, but you do it anyway. That has real ethical value. Because if something is right, but you love doing what is right, well, what's the benefit in that? Does that make sense? You're just doing what you're loving. So he argued the way you could tell when you're being this, have this pure ethical driven is when you actually your heart is in one place, but you're doing another. And yet, bizarrely, that is exactly the opposite of what God is saying in the Bible. It's the opposite. Because the first section on love that we read is all about motivation. It says, if we have great words and do great deeds, but we don't have love at our heart, it doesn't count for anything. It says, if we give ourselves sacrificially to help those around us and even give of our money and our time and our energy, but it's not motivated by love, then we are nothing. It's saying that even if we try to serve and help and do all kinds of noble things, but love isn't the thing which is motivating us, it's not born out of a true desire from our heart, it truly doesn't count. Love is right at the very center of the Christian faith. It's what should drive all of our ethics, all of our life. And if we're doing that which is right, but love isn't there, that isn't good. This can be very easily illustrated because there is a kind of love that doesn't bring any honor to anybody. I am very um, indebted to a writer by the name of Piper who stuck me towards uh, another uh, Christian thinker called Edward Carnell, who tried to talk about this issue about motivation and love. And the, way, the question he asked was this. It was a fascinating question. He said, suppose a man comes to his wife and says, must I kiss you goodnight each night? That's an interesting question, isn't it? He said, supposing a man came to his wife and said, must I kiss you goodnight each night? Carnell said, what will she say? 
And because he's a philosopher, he said, she will say, unless a spontaneous affection for your person motivates me, your overtures are stripped of moral beauty. <laughs> now, personally, I think she'll just give him a slap. <laughs> what she's trying to say is you must, but it's not that kind of must. It's a different type of must. This isn't something which is purely dictated in the terms of duty, because there's a type of duty you can perform that doesn't honor anybody. Uh, on the street where I live, right at the very top of it, almost op no, op opposite the entrance of, of the top of my road, there's a, there's a florist. And I know them very, very well, and they love me. Um, and the reason they love me is because my wife loves flowers, and I love my wife. And so very often when I've been away, and as you've heard, I tend to do quite a lot of travel, when I've been away, I'll sometimes call there and I'll buy her flowers. So supposing I go to the florist and I buy my wife flowers and I, I hold them behind my back and I knock on the door and she opens the door and she says, Michael, you're back early. And I say, yeah, we landed early. And then I whip the flowers out from behind my back and I go, ta-da, these are for you. And she looks at them and she smiles and she says, Michael, why did you buy them? You shouldn't have done. And I say, it was my duty. <laughs> well, there's something very profoundly deficient in that answer. It's not the right answer. Because there's a type of duty that brings no honor to another person, that brings no honor to your country, and it brings no honor to God. It's a duty that's stripped of all forms of joy. The performance of any kind of moral or ethical duty is beautiful because it's motivated by love, not because you have to at the point of a gun, but because you have to because you're compelled from within. And that's the true nature of all kinds of love, is that it's something that you yourself want to delight in. You must do it because you're driven to, you want to, nothing else will do. Now, when some people hear this, they say, but Michael, if what's ultimately driving all of this ethics and this love is because you love it and you want it and you desire it and it, you delight in it, then doesn't that make your love very selfish? It's all about you. Well, that still confuses the issue. We're still not thinking clearly enough when we think that way. Look, supposing I've been away from, you know, out of the country you know, for eight, nine, ten days, and I, I come back home, and I brought my wife flowers, and I, I knock on the door, and she opens the door, and I produce the flowers. Ta-da! And she takes the flowers, and she says, Michael, they're beautiful. You shouldn't have done this. Why did you? And I say, because I know how much you love flowers and nothing makes me more happy than to make you happy. As a matter of fact, I've arranged a babysitter tonight. I'm gonna take you out to our favorite restaurant because nothing, there's nothing I would rather do. There's no one I'd rather be with. There's no one I'd rather spend my time with than you. When I say that to her, she never looks at me and says, what do you mean there's nothing you wouldn't rather do? Why don't you think about me sometime? How can you be so selfish? <laughs> She doesn't say that because it's the nature of love to delight yourself in the other. That is the hallmark of a living, loving relationship. That is what a healthy, loving relationship looks like. When you find your delight in the other and at the heart of the Christian faith is a living relationship with God. Where you come to church not because you have to out of some sense of duty, because you want to, you want to connect with him. You've experienced and received something from him that now you want to be with, which is why Christians love singing. I didn't want to become a Christian, but one of the reasons, I mean, first of all, Christians love getting up early in the morning, but even worse than that, they, they love singing, and I can't sing. I, I don't know if any of you used to watch West Wing on television, but I used to entertain my whole family by humming along to the theme tune. I'm the only person I know who can miss every single note all the way through. I don't even hit one by accident. I can't sing. But after I became a Christian, all of a sudden I found out I wanted to which is not at all unusual because we all love to praise that which we've fallen in love with and when someone's won our love and earned it, we speak of them all the time. 
And that's what this is talking about. What's being talked about in Corinthians is saying, look, once you have encountered God and once you have received Jesus Christ, once you meet his love, you can never be the same. And it changes everything. It changes everything around you. You can't help but live differently. You want to live differently. You don't give because you have to give. You give because you want to give. You're not spending time with other people because you think it's your duty. All of a sudden now you're motivated by something totally different inside. It's the most liberating and inspiring thing. And we've also completely forgot that it's totally transformed the life of our country. You don't have to go very back in our history to look at London and realize it was one of the most debauched cities in the world. In the late 1700s, if you Google and you ask to see early pictures of London, how was London life depicted? You'll see people drunk on gin, half naked in the streets, sex in the streets, vomiting in the streets, everything in public. How on earth do we move from a society like that to this? You know, there's a statue which isn't very far away from here. It's in Piccadilly Circus. It's one of the most photographed statues in London, but nobody actually knows what it is. Millions, millions, I don't know, at least thousands, tens of thousands of people take their picture in front of it every year, and I wouldn't mind betting every week. They think they're taking a picture of Eros, so they normally put their loved one at one side, they stand on the other side, and someone takes the picture. It's a big fat cherub with little short wings and a bow and arrow. So they go, ooh, I know what that is, that's Eros, the god of love. But Eros is a hunter, and he shoots people with arrows to make them love against their will, and Corinthians says that love is not self-seeking. Actually, that statue isn't a statue of Eros at all. That statue, which is also the masthead for the London Evening Standard, represents something totally different altogether. It's Eros's lesser-known brother, Anteros. That statue was erected in honor of a man by the name of Lord Shaftesbury, who, after he encountered the love of Jesus Christ in his heart, was so moved that he campaigned to change labor laws in this country. He campaigned to change child laws. He changed the face of school. He literally changed the face of childhood here. He changed the way we think about civil rights. He changed the way we thought about how we organize our civil society. And when he died, following this incredible Christian commitment where his heart was filled with the love of Christ and he poured it out in service of other people, they wanted to erect a statue in his honor, but they knew they wouldn't want a statue of himself. That was too narcissistic. So instead, they put up a statue of Anteros that represents selfless love, self-giving love, and the official name of that statue is the Statue of Christian Charity. And it's erected in behalf of a man who after he encountered the person of Jesus Christ, poured out their life in sacrifice and service for others. That's what it means to become a Christian. Do you know that living, loving relationship with God? That is what is at the heart of the Christian faith. It's not a moral code, it's not an ethical system, it's not a statement of belief. It is more than that, it's not less than that, but it's so much more than that. It is about encountering the God who loves us, who gave himself for each one of us, who came into this world in human form in the person of Jesus Christ and laid down his life to set us free from all the things that we have done wrong. And he offers us forgiveness as a gift and a living, loving relationship with him. And if you have met him, you can never be the same. And that's the offer of the Christian gospel. To become a Christian is to receive this from him and allow him to thoroughly change your heart. Now, there are only three, and there have always been three, responses to the Christian gospel. The first one is to say, no way. I'm not interested, I'm not even sure if it's true. So, no, the answer is no. Well, if you're sitting here today and you're saying no, I'd love to invite you, come and do the Alpha course. 
This is so important and has even so changed the course of the country in which you're currently living. Come and find out if it's true or not. Come and find out what the real message of the Christian gospel is. And as you've heard, if you're worried that you're gonna to come to Alpha and be brainwashed, the last guy who spoke to you, if it is a brainwashing program, it's not very successful, he wasn't brainwashed. But he still enjoyed it. Come along and find out what is at the heart of the Christian message. Is it true, is it real? Maybe you're sitting here and you're saying maybe, maybe this is true. This sounds almost too good to be true. I'd love it to be true, but I don't know if it is. Well, again, let me invite you. This is why Alpha was set up. Come along to Alpha. But maybe you're sitting here and you know you need to say yeah, uh, you need to say yes. Maybe you've been thinking about the Christian gospel for a while. Maybe your friends have been bugging you, you've been secretly looking into it, you've been reading the Bible. And you actually know this is true and real. And as you sit here this morning, it's almost like God has reached out his heart, hand and put it on your heart and you know he's calling you. He's saying, I've come for you. I love you. There's a very different way meaning to the words I love you when God speaks them when when I speak them. When I say I love you, if I were to talk about knowing Nikki and Pippa and say I love them both, I don't see them very often but I love being with them. When I say that I mean I like them and I care for them and if they don't reciprocate my feelings I'm going to hurt because I'm missing out on something and I'm going to feel a loss of connection. But when God says I love you, he's saying I care for you very deeply. I like you so very much. But if you don't return my love, you will hurt because you are missing out on something. Don't miss out on the offer that God makes for you today, which is why we're gonna offer this time now, end this time now with a brief prayer. And I'm gonna invite you just to close your eyes for a moment, all of you, and invite you. If you would need, know, you need to say yes to receiving God's love for you today if you know who Christ is and why he came and the significance of why he laid down his life and pick, only to pick it up again and forgive you. You need that love. I'd like to pray for you. And there's nothing mystical about this at all. I'll just invite you to open your hands as you sit in your seat with people closed around you and just pray this with me. Lord, I wanna thank you that you know me and you love me. You love me even though there is so much wrong in my life. Father, your love doesn't equal affirmation in the sense of approval of everything I do, but it does mean affirmation of me as a person. And Lord, I'm sorry for what I've done, which is wrong, and I need that forgiveness that you want for me on the cross. May I know that loving, loving relationship with you. Lord, help me to follow you. Lord, I'm sorry for what I've done, and I wanna receive what you have done for me. We pray this in Christ's name, amen. One final word to all of the Christians. If you're visiting, you can close your ears at this point. But for those of you who are Christians, you come here regularly, you know Jesus Christ. I'd like to leave a challenge with you too. The faith of Shaftesbury, the faith of Wilberforce, the faith of all, faith of all of the reformers that totally transformed this Britain, uh, this country, was born out of a fact that they knew God had given everything for them so they would give everything in return. They would hold nothing back. They would give everything. Very often they would end their preaching and they would say to the congregation, don't ask what can you do, ask what more can you do? What more can you give? What more time can you give over? Where, more, when you, where can you go the extra mile? What is the extra that God is calling for you? And so maybe if that is you and you're a member of this church, maybe your response needs to be in this form today where it says give. I haven't been asked to do this, they haven't even mentioned it to me, I just saw it there and I wanted to pick it up and use it. 
Because if your commitment with God, even though you know Jesus Christ seems shallow, it's because you haven't fully given yourself over to that relationship with him. So why not even take a moment just to re-examine what it means to live in light of what he has done for you? And the more you give yourself, and the more you give of what you have, the more you'll find you receive. It's incredible, the riches that await for everyone who fully gives themselves to Christ, and there is just so much more. May God bless you, you've listened very, very well, give yourselves a pat on the back, and now you may all go and enjoy your lunch. 